especially in the world of internet news, you have to balance getting something out quickly with, you know, covering everything that's important about the story. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I'm speaking today with Joan Engebritsen, the editor of Telecompetitor. Welcome. <laughs> nice to be here. Thanks. I'm, I'm excited to, to be speaking with you because I feel like uh, there's so many interesting things that are happening out there, and I know that... Um, you know, we do a fraction of the reporting that you do, and yet it is overwhelming. <laughs> so uh, I thought we could talk a little bit about that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about one of the more interesting stories of the past six months, which is what is going on with the mapping challenges and what are the deadlines that actually matter? And, and where, why is there so much confusion around this? Um, we'll also talk a bit about like um, how you how you get into uh, uh, real technical issues uh, like around DOCSIS 4. So uh, I was just going to start by asking you, you've been doing this for a long time. I feel like you're one of the names that was that I was reading on my first days. So uh, let me let me just ask you, you know, how did you get into this? Honestly, I majored in journalism and then I got an MBA and I did MBA type stuff for about 10 years. And I realized I had always wanted to be a journalist. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I managed to kind of make the transition by being a marketing communications manager for a couple of years. And so I was still in marketing, but I was doing more kind of like reporting and newsletters and things like that. And uh, uh, I live in Chicago, which is where Telephony Magazine is. And I did some freelancing for them. And then a position came open there and they, they had me interview for it. I got it. I was features editor there first. And that was back in the mid 90s. So it's been almost 30 years I've been doing this now you know, in a variety of, of outlets, initially print, and it's been, you know, all online for quite a long time now. I've actually been writing for Telecompetitor for 12 years. Um, I only recently became the editor, but um, I was doing a lot of the writing and reporting, uh, editing of other people, assigning things anyway. So it wasn't a real, real big transition for me. So you picked the right 30 years, I feel like. That's yeah, where sure. that's when the action started happening, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was, in fact, I started right about the time the Telecom Act was passed of 96. You know, there was kind of that boom period, then there was kind of a bust period in the early 2000s. And then um, it was, you know, kind of stable, steady, not super exciting. Well, it was exciting technology-wise, but there wasn't a lot of big changes other than that for, you know, 10 years or so. And then, you know, it's what's happening now almost kind of reminds me of the period right after the Telecom Act was passed when there was a lot of investment coming in and uh, so on and so forth. But I, what happened that time was people got over exuberant and there was too much money that came in and there was kind of a crash. I'm hopeful that that's not going to happen this time because I think people have a better understanding of what makes sense and what doesn't in terms of spending on broadband and so on and so forth. I think you might have more faith than people than I do on that, in that regard. I'm I'm afraid that there's a bunch of private equity folks that, that think yeah. that they can take companies that are doing a good job and they can scale them all at 10x and not really sure we're going to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about telecompetitors since you, you've been there for so long. I feel like we see other other companies now doing more and more and perhaps even being more ambitious in their coverage. What sets telecompetitor apart from others that are writing about the telecom industry? What I always say is, you know, when I'm describing telecompetitor pe to people, I say that it is a news website focused on broadband 
with an emphasis on rural broadband, because we really do cover all the technology news, all the big company news, um, you know, AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, Cox, all those companies. But um, we, we also cover the, the tier two and tier three companies, which uh, traditionally didn't get as much attention. You know, a, g- a good chunk of our reader base is, is in that category. And, uh, and that area now has become quite hot, as you know, because those are the, that's the area where we're looking to get government funding out there for broadband. Mm-hmm. So there is money coming into that area and uh, it's become, you know, a hotter area really since COVID because I think COVID was what caused everyone to realize that there's a lot of people that don't have broadband. And I mean, a few years ago, you'd hear things like, well, if you live in some area where they don't have broadband, why don't you just move? You know, yes. um, and you don't hear that so much anymore. Um, it seems like there is a lot more recognition that everyone, you know, even if you have broadband, you still do want everyone to have it. I mean, you look at Microsoft, they have this airband project to try to get uh, broadband to rural areas. They had that even before. That goes back at least five years, maybe a little more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, they realize that if there's more people on the internet, there's that many more people they can sell all their offerings to. And uh, I think more and more people are starting to realize that, that um, it's really to everyone's benefit to have everyone be connected to broadband. Yeah, I, um, I'm curious, if you go back and you search your, your archives, I'm curious the point at which you would have first quoted someone saying, um, well, now we all agree internet access is essential and we have to make sure that everyone's on it. Because I don't know, I would guess that the first time you wrote that is probably like on the order of 10 years ago. Um, at least I feel like that. I've started hearing people say that. It was one of those topics that people had pretty strong views on both ways. Uh, because there was a lot of people who who really, well, you may remember the whole taxing the internet thing, you know, that you shouldn't, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and people didn't even know what that meant. It just didn't sound good. You know, this right. idea <laughs> that you shouldn't spend government money on, um, you know, bringing broadband to people in rural areas. If they don't like it, they can move, that kind of thing. And um, I think COVID was really what brought more people around to the other side of thinking, which is what I just mentioned earlier, that. Mm-hmm the more people are connected, it benefits everyone. There's this whole thing called the network effect, you know, that the, the more people you have connected, it's like an exponential improvement in, in, you know, connectivity, not just a one-to-one growth or direct, direct relationship. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm just, I feel like there's a part of me that feels a bit cynical about elected officials who I feel like some have been saying the same thing and they, and they're not reflecting in their budgets, uh, especially when we have federal dollars that are available and it's a lot easier than to put money into it. But when it actually comes down to it, you know, I, I look at like um, Boston, Boston actually has in its regular budget money that is raised from taxes in Boston is spent on the digital divide. And most mm-hmm. cities don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, for most cities, they might even have positions that are funded by private philanthropy uh, to be working on digital divide stuff in the mayor's office or things like that. And I, you know, I just I don't know, like, I feel like I'm interviewing you. You're the news person. You're supposed to be more cynical. <laughs> <laughs> but you feel like, you know, you you feel like COVID did change things and that we are seeing an actual rebalancing now. Right. I remember hearing one example of there were some areas where the, you know, when they sent all the kids home to 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 go to school at home. Um, there were some areas where the kids couldn't go to school at home. And so they didn't go to school you know, mm-hmm. for like six months or something. And, um, you know, people realized, oh, that is kind of crazy. 
Yeah. Um, and then that led to the U.S. Congress appropriating mm -hmm. money, NTIA distributing it. I'm sure mm -hmm. you've, I'm, I don't know how familiar you were with NTIA is. I mean, a lot of people still struggle over that, uh, the initials of that, uh, yeah. the abbreviation. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but now we have this situation. And this is where, you know, I originally, I, um, I feel like you were the one person on January 13th that got it right um, about what was at stake there. There was a couple of others, but I didn't see anyone that was actually like a reporter uh -huh. that had gotten it right regarding what the deadline was for and this and that. Uh -huh. And so I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the mapping challenges and things like that from, from your perspective. But I just wanted to like, I'm curious about the overall thing, which is that it's still not clear to me. We're seeing, we're getting conflicting statements from uh, people at NTIA about whether or not location challenges would be reflected in the June 30th map decision, which will allocate the uh, bead uh, funding. And and you were pretty clear about it, but like no one else was. And so before we, we get into it too much, like have you seen anything else where like it was of this importance where people were just confused about what the deadlines were and when what mattered? Yeah, it was pretty confusing and when all this was coming to a head which was there was this deadline of january um i think it was the 13th. 13th. it was friday the 13th it was january yep, exactly 13th, to where uh people were told get your challenges in by this date and it a lot of the verbiage didn't say what type of challenges and there's two type of challenges there i mean as you probably know and as a lot of your listeners probably know there were location challenges in other words is this a real location that could be broadband serviceable and or are there locations that are brand broadband serviceable that are missing? Uh, that's one type of uh, challenge. The other type of challenge was um, availability. And once you have those addresses or those locations, uh, is broadband available there? And the the deadlines were different for those two different things, but they were never it was a lot of the verbiage that came out of NTIA and FCC did not have that level of detail it would just say challenges you know try to get your challenges in by this time and there was even you know the FCC was saying send in your challenges and um, some people said I think they heard kind of word of mouth from NTIA that they should have location challenges in sometime maybe in November I think it was uh, October 30th there was something that came out recently that said that November 10 was the date by which bulk challenges in other words, the current version of the location fabric, it shows the um, challenges that were made and addressed prior to November 10th. And so if your challenge was put in after that, this, we're talking location challenges here, it won't be addressed until the next time there is another broadband data collection. And that happens twice a year. So the FCC, as you know, does the, does the data collection and NTIA is the one that's going to be awarding funding for broadband through the bead program and so on and the 42.5 billion that we keep hearing about part of the issue is just coordinating between the two agencies but also um there was the whole issue of the two different types of challenges and so on and so forth so the fcc does this collection process twice a year one begins january 1st essentially the beginning of the year and one begins six months later so the fcc can only really make location challenges prior to when availability challenges are put in because you can't start throwing in location challenges when service providers that have to report this information about where they have broadband available they have to report it against something which is the location database 
So you can only really change the location database twice a year. What ended up happening was that the database that became available roughly January 1st was based on locations that have been challenged and resolved as of November 10th of the previous year. And that's the location database that's going to be used for um, allocating bead funds. And then we're currently in the process, the broadband providers are in the process of entering into their availability data. And uh, there's going to be a challenge process for that as well. But those challenges wouldn't be recognized until the next time that the fabric comes out, which would be in, uh, you know another six months. So um, just that easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> and there was a new deadline put out. March 15th is um, the deadline for bulk fabric challenges um, for the next version of the map, the one that is made available to providers at the end of June and into which they input their availability data as of the end of June. So that's after the bead funding is supposed to be allocated. Which I just uh, I find it really aggravating that basically the location challenges uh, were uh, closed off before almost anyone had access to the map. States had access to the map, but most of the states didn't even have an office that was able to deal with it. They didn't have GIS people. Right. So there was never really an opportunity to fix the map. And I, and then I felt like between NTIA and the FCC, and I don't want to relitigate everything here. It's not your space, but, but I just, I'm amazed at how unclear they were. Like, I, I feel like, and you know, you have so much years of experience of talking to uh, agencies, spokespeople, I feel like their job is to make this clear so that we're not all confused about on January yeah. 12th, we're like, wait a minute, do location challenges even matter? Like, what are we doing here? Right. And when the, when that January 13th, like I said earlier, when the January 13th deadline was put out, it didn't say what type of challenges they were. Um, I guess they assumed that you would know that this it was too late to change location challenges because, you know, the availability data is entered against the locations. Mm-hmm. But it still would have been very useful to have said that. I've heard from quite a few people that they don't want to see the whole allocation process held up by this whole debate about the accuracy of the maps. Uh, because there's a whole another issue we could talk about, which is that people who did challenge locations uh, or availability, very few of those challenges were uh, accepted and they weren't given explanations of why uh, they weren't accepted. So that's a whole another issue. But the thinking now among a lot of people that I've heard from is that they don't want to delay things. If there are problems with the map, they probably affect all the states equally. And so therefore, let's just go ahead and allocate the funding with the information we have now, you know, as of June 30th is, will be the information, June 30th of, of this year, based on the data that was input by the providers showing their status as of the end of 2022. And, and based on the locations that were as of November-ish, um, that, you know, anything resolved as of November. And then it's up to the states really to do the awards. Mm-hmm. They're going to be given a, a pool of funding and they're going to be deciding who gets it and what areas are eligible and so on. And some of them already have done their own maps. New York did their map, um, Georgia did a map, and there's a lot of states that have done that. And they may not even rely on this FCC map to make their allocations. 
Um, if they do, yeah. And if they do, there's a whole other six months to, you know, try to hone in on getting that more accurate. And it's never going to be perfect because there's always that's you know, right. locations being built and new broadband being deployed and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that's what I've been hearing from a lot of people. No, that's what people are yeah. saying that, but I just, I don't, I, for the life of me, if we'd used the 477 data, I think then we would have had fairly uniform uh, errors. But yeah, the way CostQuest compiled this information, I actually think we'll see significant different error rates because different states have different levels of accuracy of the records that they keep. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, I would think that Western states with uh, more tribes where the federal government and there's generally much worse record keeping. Mm -hmm. um, I think Arizona and Nevada are really going to be penalized, frankly. And, uh, you know, and then states like Ohio, I think, got in tons of challenges because they were paying attention. And Illinois, mm -hmm. the same, I think. Whereas um, Arizona, I think, didn't even have a broadband office really by yeah. November 10th. You know, <laughs> so yeah. and I mean, you know, it's it, someone could say, well, the state should have been on top of it. Well, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But like um, anyway, I just I feel like whether it is um, Ardoff or this, I, I don't know. I feels like the federal government just cannot handle this. And I don't remember like the stimulus in 2009, 2010, you covered that too. Mm -hmm. I wasn't super happy about the way it went, but it seemed like it was more competently administered at the time to me. I mean, you did hear some complaints about overbuilding and so on and so forth, but it wasn't uh, to the same, well, overbuilding isn't the issue so much now, but just- That was the complaint people had though at the time. That's right. Yeah. Um, but those were the main complaints at that time. And this time, you know, there's a variety of complaints. And uh, one thing that I also noticed is that the FCC keeps saying they've reflected bulk challenges in the map. And there was that was one of two ways you could make your challenge. You could also challenge as an individual where you actually clicked on a location in the map. And the bulk challenge is only governments and providers could actually do a bulk challenge. You basically upload your own data to, you know, challenge what you think, what's in the database they already have not addressed the individual challenges. So if you are a person who says, I, they say I have broadband and I don't, that hasn't even been addressed yet. And mm -hmm. they're still, even this March 15th date, they're still just saying bulk challenges. And, and yet you, they keep saying, you know, you hear Jessica Rosenworcel, for example, has recently said, you know, everyone's encouraged to file their challenges. But <laughs> um, it, looks, it sure looks like it's going to be a real long time to get to the individual ones. Well, the other thing I've been curious about is I've heard uh, I've heard varying things in terms of rejection rates of challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the challenges seem to be rejected because the the like if a state files a bunch of challenges, but an ISP had already fixed those errors previously, then I think the FCC rejects the challenges, although that location will have been fixed in the map. And so rejection rates, it isn't clear exactly always that that means this, that the map won't be fixed. Um, but I'm I'm hearing a lot of concern about high rejection rates. You made that comment earlier. So uh, that's something you're hearing, too. And and I don't think any of us have a sense of whether we're even going to see the raw numbers of, of yeah. uh, challenges and rejections and reasons and all that. I, I think people's minds would be put to rest a lot more if some of that had been shared or if, if it would be shared in the future. I mean, perhaps if I was giving them the benefit of a doubt, I would say maybe they were just trying to get things done quickly and didn't have time to go into that level of detail. You know, at some point they got to catch up. You know, at some point they have to say, oh, we finally we have time now. We'll tell you why, mm -hmm. you know, the criteria we use for rejecting or accepting challenges. 
So I feel like one of the aspects of your job is that you have to be focused on this government deadlines, what's going on with these processes. And then the next minute you're writing about, uh, you know, the future of Doxis 4, which, right. you know, is what the cable companies will be using to compete with right. the, uh, with the, uh, the fiber companies, you know, right. I felt like in like 2018, I felt like people were like Doxis 4, Doxis symmetrical. We're going to have it in 2022. In 2022, I felt like I was hearing, ah, oh, we'll get it done by the end of the decade. And now more recently, I feel like I'm hearing, oh, no, we're going to get it rolled out in the next couple of years, although Comcast and Charter are going in different ways. Yes. How do you how do you track all that? I mean, you have an MBA. Um, did you how did you become technical enough to be able to write about this comfortably? It was you know, just doing it for a long time. Um, I actually read Telephony Magazine before I started working there um, because I, I was kind of interested in that area and was already hearing it was kind of booming and I would read things and eventually you start understanding it all. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I was freelancing for them, I would learn new things too. Yeah, same as me, right? Like, I mean, a lot of it comes from just chatting with people and, exactly. uh, you know, you go out to events and, and you 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 end up at a dinner table with some engineers and you listen, right? <laughs> right. I remember one time I wrote, I was writing something about ATM when I didn't really know what it was. And I went out and actually bought a book about ATMs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm dating myself. You don't hear much about ATM anymore. But Well, one of my mentors would love to hear that because he insists that ATM was such an elegant uh, <laughs> a way of transmitting data and we were right. foolish not to embrace it. Right. Do you just have a ton of Google alerts? Do you get like, does everyone notice send you press releases? How do you decide when it, to write it's about a lot of different? Yeah, it's a lot of different things. Um, it's wire services. It's um, subscribing to a lot of different things. It's Google alerts. It's uh, I spend a large part of my day just kind of filtering information and from all the different places that it comes from. And do you have a sense of analytics? Like, do you do you see that like stories about the the sort of um, like a Doxis four story is that going to get more coverage than a story about um, about mapping issues or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you can tell that to some extent, but um, you know, there's a lot of hot topics right now. So, um, you know, we try to cover all the important things that are going on. Um, I think where the story, kind of stories I really like to write are ones where. I've always wondered about something, you know, it isn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't someone calling me and saying, Hey, we've got this new widget. Can we talk to you about it? That's fine. But um, my favorite stories to write are where someone has told me about their widget and I realize, wait, what about this? Or what about that? And then I'll dig into that. That I think is where you can really differentiate your coverage. Yeah. And I think you can tell when someone's really interested in it. Mm -hmm. So in the writer or the reader. I feel like you can tell when the, the writer is really into it mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it just, I, you know, I've written and, and you don't have to admit to this if it's ever happened to you uh, because you're, you're a professional. Uh, but uh, I feel like there's definitely times where I've written about something that I thought needed to be written about, but I wasn't into it. I was much more willing to gloss over details and not go as in depth. In yeah. I could see that happening. Also, and especially in the world of internet news, you, have to balance getting something out quickly with, you know, covering everything that's important about the story that also sort of adds a whole different layer of challenge to it too. On the order of 10 years ago, and we we're just focused on the municipal and cooperative space. I felt like we could have tabs more or less on everything that was happening in that space. And now 
it's it's impossible. There's just mm-hmm. there's way too much. Um, do you do you find yourself consciously having to let things go that like ten years ago you would have done a, a story on, and now you just have to pick and choose among them? Not exactly. We different outlets have different theories or or philosophies about uh, covering a lot of vendor news, and uh, so I think maybe in the past I might have covered more of that type of news, you know, every time there's a new product from certain companies. Now it's, I generally don't cover vendor news unless it's really big news, mm-hmm. uh, something that really people need to know about because, and a part of it is that there's just so many sources now for things like vendor news. Uh, a lot of them do their own newsletters and do their own uh, blogs. And uh, I think there's less value placed on, you know, a media outlet covering that type of news. Right. They don't, they don't necessarily need that to get it out to their customers anymore. Exactly. Right. And it used to be a couple of people would call you up and want to brief you about their new product. And that doesn't seem to happen anymore either. I think since everyone's gone to remote work, I think that's part of it. They used to know that, you know, certain publications were in certain cities and they could go and talk to people there. Uh, they would even fly in to talk to you. Um, but right. you know, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Where do you where do you see this going? And um, you know, is this the sort of thing that um, you're going to be sticking around? And I'm I'm always curious. Someone who's had 30 years of experience, are you um, looking forward to that day when you retire and then you don't think about it anymore? Or are you going to be one of these like 89 year old lawyers who's still practicing? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. I do think about it from time to time. Um, I really do love what I do, so uh, I'm not you know in any hurry to retire. And then I also sometimes wonder. You know, I'd love to, to do more traveling and things like that, but I also um, wonder what I would do when I'm not traveling. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm good for now. I'm really in- I still continue to enjoy what I'm doing. That's one thing that's really interesting about this area is that there, you know, there there is always new things happening, um, new technology. I mean, I don't write about ATM anymore, but I'm writing about other things. Um, you know, Doxis or whatever you would have written about a few years ago, but now that's coming along. So. Yeah, it's it's it, that keeps it interesting. I I really like knowing that there's people out there that have a lot of experience. And um, one of the things that experience has taught me, probably you've had a similar thing, is when I see a new byline I haven't seen before, I try to cut them a little bit of slack because I remember how hard it is to get into this space. Uh, so, uh, but I'm glad you're out there and uh, and you have that uh, that background to uh, to keep reporting. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. This has been uh, it's been fun catching up a little bit and getting uh, beyond a byline I've seen everywhere for so long. Nice talking to you as well. I think we had a nice conversation. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle. Licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.